trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep and detailed discussion about sexual abuse and self-harm, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. Hi Ventures, how are we all doing? Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and as you may well know by now, but in case you don't, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've interviewed one male detransitioner in the form of Limpida. I wanted a UK perspective on this issue and I was contacted by a male detransitioner from the UK who goes by the name of Tulip who wanted to come on the pod. Tulip started life as a very gender non-conforming child but he struggled with being small and being effeminate. He said he had a lot of internalised homophobia after coming to the realisation he was gay. Tulip suffered from intense and debilitating panic attacks from a very early age and was even hospitalised with one when he was just four years old. Tulip admits he externalised the battle he was having onto other kids and was a bully in his primary school years. However, when he got to secondary school and he failed to develop in size and height like the rest of his peers, in a rough peer group, his effeminate nature and being small led to him being bullied and horrifically abused himself. When he was 10 years old, he was also spending a huge amount of time on his computer and began to go on internet chat rooms and was groomed by older men who convinced him to give them personal details about him by a webcam and expose himself to them. By the time he was 13 years old, he was an agoraphobe and he stopped going outside regularly for the best part of 15 years. Coupling this with some family issues having at home and adding in gender dysphoria, Tulip began to struggle immensely with his mental health. Tulip has a high diagnosed OCD and is still in the process of getting an autism diagnosis but has had preliminary appointments and is awaiting the formal diagnosis. By the time we get to his early 20s, he began to go on trans chat rooms and ask users if he was trans because of the symptoms he was experiencing. They affirmed him, he then came out as trans and began the process to appearing, dressing and sounding female. These chat rooms, he says, were also filled with predatory males who were giving him praise and flattery for the pictures of himself he was posting. One person encouraged him to try hooking up with other men after he disclosed he was not confident with his body and his sexuality and he ended up having casual sex with a lot of men who were much, much older than him. This made him hate the gay sexual experience and convinced him that he needed gender reassignment surgery. However, this went horribly, horribly wrong. Tulip was already on the medical process and was taking pills to block his testosterone and estrogen hormone replacements. Despite the doubts he had about the surgery, he thought that if he didn't do this, he would die. The surgery had huge complications, which required him to have a blood transfusion, and he has now been left without gonads and may be on HRT for the rest of his life. His urethra was constricted and shortened through three separate surgeries and must live with the complications of this forever. This is by far one of the most heartbreaking and deeply traumatic episodes I've done. I'm in awe of Tulip's courage to share his story, and after this episode, I'll probably be taking a break from the gender wars. So this is how my conversation with Tulip went. 
Tulip, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. After having Limpida on, I felt very flattered when you got in touch and you wanted to come on. How are you getting on, mate, on this Sunday morning? Thank you very much for having us on. I'm doing very well, thank you. I just want to quickly go in, uh, getting in touch, obviously, because uh, that's just came up. I've been involved with Limpida for the last month or so, doing some stuff with the D-Trans Men's Discord, and I really wanted an opportunity to talk about the work mm-hmm. that we're doing, as well as share my story. And also, how are you today? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thanks, mate. I'm not too bad. We've got a lot to talk about. And we're going to talk all about that D-Trans awareness webinar that you got involved in with Limpida in just a second. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Let's do it. When we spoke off air, mate, you wanted to flip my original running order. So we're going to talk about the D-Trans advocacy work you do in this journey you've been on first. Tell me why you wanted to do this and how you entered this space. So what happened was I've been involved in another D-Trans discord, but not like involved in sort of running it, just being part of it. And I've been in there for about five or six months and about 80% of it is D-Trans women. And I love D-Trans women as well. They're, they're great and everything, but having these conversations that you need to have, you just can't quite do it in a space that isn't men only. And I think it's very important that men and women have their own spaces to discuss things unhindered or without any outside eyes mm. prying in because that can change your sort of reaction to to a lot of it as well. So what happened is I saw Limpida do the webinar in March for D-Trans Awareness Day at the beginning of March. And they were mentioning this men's group that they were going to set up. And I got in contact and I was like, dude, I'm so interested in that. Let's do it. I would love to, I'd love to join. So he basically invited us along when it was made. And ever since then, we've really, really got on very, very swimmingly. It's just kind of unraveled from there, to be honest. The detransitioner community seems like a very supportive space between you all, mate, despite all of the horrible trauma that you've gone through. However, what stigmas do male detransitioners face versus female detransitioners? Because females seem on first glance to be much better supported and also much better championed too. So why is that? I don't see the same mm. for males. I think that's a very long one because there's a lot of other dynamics in play. So firstly, spaces where men and women only have been gone to has been something that's been in play for quite a long time. I always remember growing up like the social clubs, like the gentleman <laughs> social clubs, which was basically, as they said, old man clubs because women weren't supposed to go in. And you've also got these spaces that are specifically for women, mainly shelters and other such spaces where women come together to go through all the stuff that they've been going through at the hands of men largely. And I'm sorry to say that, but and I know domestic violence works both ways. But what's happened is with these groups, you've already had the structures in place for many decades as a sort of response to things that they've experienced. And the trans movement itself, which is very male-oriented, and it's very much about the males entering the female area and getting into the shelters, getting into the toilets, changing their language completely, you know, so you're not a mother, you're a birth giver, and all this crazy dystopian speak. So women themselves can see that this is a direct attack on them, and they're more personally involved, should we say. So when a D-trans woman comes out, 
there's a lot of landing in place from these advocacy groups, charities, feminists of all variety who are ready to welcome them with open arms because it's like, oh, it's one of the victims. But when a male comes along, it's like, well, you're part of the problem. You can't possibly be a victim. You must be some sort of antagonizer of some kind because, you know, men obviously have all the power in society and they are never victimized. That's the narrative, isn't it? It is. They've got perfect mental health. They don't kill themselves. They don't kill each other. They're doing absolutely fine. And obviously that is really bad sarcasm. <laughs> but to go back why we have this space, it's because the spaces inherently exist largely for women and there isn't much for men generally anymore. Because although we've had this big narrative, especially in the media, about you know we need single-sex spaces, we need women's only spaces because we don't want them invaded. And I totally understand that. There isn't really anything for men anyway. And I think there needs to be, it needs to be more male orientated in the sense that it's run for men by men in the same way it is with women's charities. But I know for a fact that when it comes down to this whole sort of narrative and feminism in general, it is only a small sect who are super hyper aggressive in the same way that trans activists Mm. are. You know, I've seen them say some really horrible things to male detransitioners and men in general. And I think they themselves may have a lot of their own trauma, probably at the hands of men. So seeing a man as a victim for them would mean that a lot of (laughs) things would have to be challenged. Yeah, their narrative would fall down. It would do, yeah. So it's deeply important that we have our own space Mm. too. We're going to talk about homosexuality and your homosexuality later in the pod mate but just specifically on this for any of my gay male listeners who are tuning into this episode and would have no idea about the gay men like yourself who are detrans what would you say to them from your experience well first of all gay men are pretty based all the gay men i know in my life have always been very understanding very empathetic and it was a gay man himself who helped pull me out of this by just giving us a little anchor just letting us know about detrans awareness didn't react very well but that changed later we'll get into that but i don't think gay men are a huge issue in this field and i know people are like oh gay men need to stand up gay men need to do this and i'm like well to be honest it's gay men that have been targeted to begin with we kind of forget that it was gay kids and neurodiverse kids that would have probably came out as bi or gay even just a little bit gender non-conforming, but whatever. So I think gay men are sort of already in this, and to treat that as a faction that needs to come in isn't quite the right narrative, Mm. I think. But in general, I just want to say that gay men have been extremely supportive and understanding, and many of them look at this and think, shit, if I was just like five years or ten years younger, this would have been me, 100%. So there is so much empathy from them. I don't know if I have a message other than thank you and don't be shy to help Mm. others. When we spoke off air, you said to me, what's happening right now isn't a cult, it's a religion. What did you mean by that? Okay, so this is quite, I don't know, maybe a little bit tinfoil, (laughs) shall I say, tinfoil hat. Spicy. Um, (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed, spicy, which ironically is my internet nickname. A cult is somewhere that you can 
point to. You can say that there's a headquarters there, and like <laughs> Scientology, you can like actually Google their headquarters. And a cult is very specific, and it normally what it does is it, it tends to bring you away from society. A lot of cults operate in great secrecy. It involves family members who completely disconnect, and that cult operates in its own mm. little world. And the difference is with sort of a religion is that belief is integrated into the world alongside everything else. So let's just take a standard example of, say, Christian. You know, at school, I did hymns. I'm sure you mm -hmm. probably did too. And you're wondering why. There were so many kids that, like, I was from a, a religious family up until a certain point, were very casual Catholics. And about the age of seven or eight, we were just like, I've got older siblings, and everyone was like, oh, we're bored with this, we're not going to do this anymore. But still, all the, you know, christenings and all the standard stuff that everyone else does. But that in itself is very much ingrained to the culture, even though we're not religious. It's just part of, you know, people get married, people go to church still, even though they're <laughs> not that religious. You know what I mean? It's just part of our culture. Now, a cult operates away from your culture, whereas religion is very much ingrained, and what we'll have is... We've got societal affirmation where it's like you've got all the, the campaigns for inclusion and being yourself and police cars with progress flags and all this sort of thing and transgender pavements, I, I mean zebra crossings, whatever. And you've also got the medical level where you go to a doctor and you explain all the problems you have with dysphoria, which is very, very bland. And they say, yeah, yeah, you are as well. And then you've got the legal level where you can change your name legally and stuff, which I don't have a huge problem with. But all these things added together, it's very much ingrained. And it's it's at school, it's in the workplace, it's everywhere, it's on TV, and it's, it's very much part of the culture. Whereas a cult is separate, it's a wave. And there are mentalities where they did, like, I have you ever seen the bite model no. of, like, behavior control? It's very worthwhile watching what I'm looking at. It's basically a table that breaks down the different styles of thought control, behavior control, manipulation that gets people involved in a belief or a cult that normally involves cutting mm -hmm. off the family. So you do have those aspects which are very much hidden and they're self-managed and they're self-managed remotely online. That's how the whole thing works. That's why it's blown up massively since... 2010 it's the same reason why it didn't kick off in the year 2000 and 2005 internet access wasn't mm. the same now you've got internet access everywhere it's in shops and buses schools workplaces free wi-fi and it's on your phone you've got like this powerful little computer on your phone that can browse the internet so you can go on all your social media apps go on tiktok and all this sort of thing so it's literally like it's ingrained and it's embedded into the culture and way that a cult isn't. Scientology, perfect example, versus Christianity. Scientology, we know about, but there's none of that that's integrated into our culture apart from it being mocked on like TV shows like South Park and stuff. But then you look at, say, sort of the Christian side and you can see how in our country, for instance, we've mainly got largely biblical first names. Most people in this country do as well. Like John, Joshua, and yeah, uh, Jacob, yeah, yeah, Richard, and yeah, and Jacob, and all the biblical names. So we're going back to the sort of analogy of it being sort of a religion. It's 
embedded at all these various different different levels in culture and society to the point where calling it a cult doesn't mm. really apply. It is absolutely 100% mm. a religion on the basis that not only is it embedded on these levels institutionally, medically, socially, culturally, but it's done so globally mm. as well, which is interesting because some countries just don't have it at all. Mm. But never mind. And as a final question before we move on to what has this advocacy journey so far, I know you're not massively long into it, taught you about yourself? I would say I've got a great deal of fuck you energy, <laughs> um, which is great. And I am a good person. I fuck up a lot and I'm not afraid to either. And it's not that I don't care if I didn't, don't make a mistake. I don't want to be reckless, but I'm certainly not afraid to. And there's, and I certainly feel like I've wasted a lot of my life hating myself and doubting and all these other things. And one of the things I've came to realize, especially with this advocacy journey and especially over the last six months to a year was I always used to look around expecting someone else to know better or be able to pick it up, solve it, you know. An asteroid's coming to the planet, for instance, Armageddon comes to mind. And it's just like he's talking to the guy at NASA about why they don't have a plan. Surely there's a plan with a backup plan. And this is the belief that there's always somebody going to take care of it. And if they're not taking care of it, there's a backup for that backup. And I came to realize that most people don't know what the hell Mm. they're talking about generally for many different things and I also came to realize especially in this field no one knows what they're (laughs) talking about it's so broad and it's so unspecific apart from the people who have studied it and critiqued it and I think that has actually taught me that it's okay to trust that maybe I know a little bit more than other people might do in this and it's okay to trust myself and say that with that fuck you energy and with being a good person that I can actually do some good with this because I'm not actually afraid to fuck up. I'm just trying not to do it monumentally, of course. We've talked about D-Trans advocacy. I want to talk about your own journey now, T, and go a bit deeper. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the T we meet here? And let's start with early childhood first, shall we? Because there's a mountain of stuff to cover. (laughs) Wow. So where to begin? Where to begin? I think I was a very highly sensitive child, very... You know, I was very much wowed by scenery and stuff and forests and I think most kids are generally, but you know how some kids just don't seem to care. I was very much really, really into it and I was very, still am extremely naive as a person in in the sense that you could tell me anything and I would just believe it if I trusted you. And it's like this instant thing that I've never been able to sort of grow past. It's very much... I would say that is somewhat of a a disadvantage. But anyway, as a child, I was extremely naive. I was very, very loving and I was very emotional and had this brightness about us and this confidence about us. And I remember thinking as a kid, especially, I was very like, I had a great spark. And over time, it feels like that spark just kind of, you know, it got dimmed in a bad way with external things and and I always tried and tried to to have a little bit of light in my life but from the early on I had my first panic attack at four years old I've been having panic attacks like all my life 
but the big ones were four, I was about eight or nine and 15, where I'd actually gone to hospital and it was like the thought of having an asthma attack. Just to say to the audience that young kids can get panic attacks um, and it can be down to things that may not even be serious, quote-unquote, if that makes sense. It could be anything that triggers it. It doesn't necessarily have to be sinister. But what I had was a disposition for anxiety. I had a real big disposition for getting panicked, getting anxious. And I think that's part to do with me, sort of neurodiversity, where it's all about me internalising a lot of messages too, a bit literally as well, and panicking. I can't really remember exactly where I was when I was four or what happened, but went to hospital and stuff, found out it wasn't Aspen. That was it, but this is very, very early 90s. So I think if that happened now, there would be a lot more mm-hmm. root ways to go from there, whether it was like, you know, is there an anxiety disorder there? Is there other stuff going on there? Or is it just, you just got overwhelmed by the stuff around you and you just had a panic attack? So there was that. And most of childhood, actually, from a very young age, there were a lot of scrapes along the way. And who doesn't have that? But overall, loving family, I would say what we did... Not all families are perfect, obviously. Uh, Never really wanted for anything. We didn't have much money back then. My dad was just, it was at the end of the miners thing then, in the early 90s. And when the mines all did shut, my dad got a better job because he was an engineer by trade as well. And we weren't well off or anything, but we didn't want for anything. We were able to go on holiday and have clothes and food and heating those there was none of that worry growing up at all. But just sort of going back to when I was younger, we didn't really have much money, but that didn't stop my parents really trying to make sure that we had stuff because they definitely came from that generation where the love through material possessions was very important. You know, like having a good car, having a good house and giving people the latest stuff, giving them good clothes, that is a sign of success. That is a sign of well-being. In that sort of older generation, it's a very traditional Yeah, status marker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And with that, they think, oh, if you have these things, you'll also be happy too. But that's another thing. But anyway, from the beginning, I had a very anxious outset, but I was also really boisterous. Like, you know, I was very, very... Again, I had that fuck you energy, but I was also, I was kind, but I could also be a right little shit. Like, I mean, a proper little shit. I would wind teachers up and run circles around them. And when I was like seven or eight, I was acting out a lot in first school. And my solution to sort of solve these things in school when I had a disagreement when I was eight or nine was just to socket punch a kid in the face. And I was always just randomly punching kids in the face and being a little shit with the teachers. And it was so bad that at eight or nine years old, if I was late for school, which randomly happened once or twice, but most of the time was punctual, I would come in late and all the other kids would see us come in and they would cheer because they knew they were going to have a good day when I was there. They knew they were going to get entertainment and all sorts of stuff. And then me, so delinquency just kind of evolved into firestorm. Nothing serious, though. Hugely into pyromancy, and I didn't do anything. I didn't burn any houses or anything down, but I used to go to fields, and we had this like big valley where I lived, and it was like a riverside and stuff, and there was lots of places to burn stuff. I used to 
love burning things with me friends. I was like, let's go burn something. Let's you never watched that anti arson video that we watched to as kids, T, the one with the cartoon probably, and the and the firefly. Too... You never watched that? <laughs> probably. Never play with matches. That was what I remember. <laughs> Man, I wasn't playing with matches. I was playing with lightning. <laughs> you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I want to talk about the gender nonconformity or the gender stereotype nonconformity you had at a pretty early age T. So when you were age six, seven, you said mm-hmm. you liked to dress up as a teacher, a sort of stereotypically female role in primary teachers. You like to pretend to cook. So when did you know you were gay and why did you internalize a lot of hatred of it? Wow. Right. Well, first of all, the sort of pretend the taking on the matriarchal role models of like the teacher, that was something I was doing in primary school from like four or five. And I had also when I was four years old, me mother got us a, a pop-up kitchen. Nice. Now, back in the very early 90s, all kids' toys were very gender neutral. It was like yellow, red and blue. It was like the primary colours. There wasn't anything really pink or anything like really People would be surprised polished. to hear that, by the so way. People it, think that the 90s was very yeah, gender kind of separated, but it wasn't, it, was it? It happened at about mid-90s that that really started edging off. But if you look at a lot of adverts, especially for Lego and stuff in the 80s and very early 90s, you'll see that it was extremely neutralised already. And then that just disappeared mid-90s. And then I remember all of a sudden I was getting bored action men mm. and all these sort of things, which were pretty good, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, <laughs> never mind. So, God, there's so much I want to... Oh, I need to cover. Right. Well, so I was very gender non-conform as a kid. I was very interested in doing, you know, I wanted to be a baker. I hate getting me hands dirty, but I loved to... I wanted to dance, but I also loved me Tonka mm. truck. And I loved Lego. I loved spaceship stuff. I loved cranes. I'm still obsessed with cranes. <laughs> I feel like that's a neurodivergent um, trait. <laughs> it is. Mate, cranes and trains. It's always cranes. with autistic kids, isn't it? Cranes and trains. I don't know, man. It's just cranes and trains. I had a train set when I was a kid, but it was the whole sort of mm. lifting and grabbing with it. And I had this great Tonka truck when I was about four and a half five as well so i think me mom me mom she was a childminder as well and she was quite good with the the gender neutral stuff i think me dad who was minor was very much like you're gonna turn him gay but me mom kind of said she always kind of knew anyway like i was just different from me older brother who is a proper proper lad lad and i'm just sitting there going i don't want my hands dirty you know what i mean so when did I realize I was gay? I think it was when I was about eight or nine and I had a crush on one of my friends, which graduated in the same year as me, onto middle school and high school and adult life. And we had some very pseudo-gay experiences, like feeling each other up in, in classes and stuff. And it was like we were both really like wanting to do something, but we were both really terrified, so it never quite transpired, and I kind of wish we just did, but I think a big part to play in this, and I do want to talk about that, is Section 28, which I feel may be responsible for some of this in some regards. There was no education when I was growing up about me being gay. All I knew was being gay was terrible. Being gay was to be ridiculed, to be mocked. It was perverted it was the worst possible outcome for a kid and the parent had a gay kid and 
I knew that. I was like, shit, I'm gay as fuck. And, <laughs> and I'm just sitting there just thinking, just panicking. And I was so scared, so anxious about it. And that's a big part of my OCD as well. So one of the things that really started with the OCD, I think that's where the panic attacks had the root in. I was already had the disposition to be anxious. And then what happened with the OCD is when I started realizing I was gay and stuff, I would try and comfort myself. And this is how it works. So you might do something that gives you relief. So for instance, say I'm thinking about something stressful and I'm, I'm like rubbing me, me legs and that temporarily releases the stress. The next time I have a distressing thought, my mind's like rub your legs again, but it doesn't work because it was just a one thing that worked at that one time. So your brain becomes locked in this routine of trying to repeat a behavior that worked originally but won't work again, which is why you become obsessive and ritualistic. So what I was doing was I would be checking locks on doors. I would have to touch certain parts mm. of the wall as I was walking up. I would have to do things in a very specific order. And if I got it wrong, I would have to start again. And if I didn't do this, it meant I was gay. So the OCD and, like, and the internalized homophobia were sort of operating in tandem. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, if you don't do mm. that, you're gay. If you don't do that, you're gay. If you don't do that, you're gay. And it was just like, I was so, so, so deeply worried. And I think me mom was always going to be okay with it. And she tried when I was younger to get us to say stuff like, you know, I don't care who you love or and all that. I just want you to find someone. And I interpret this as, oh, she wants us to find a girlfriend. You know what I mean? Because I'm taking it very literal rather than, it's not up to her to tell me that I'm gay, you know what I mean? And I appreciate that. But I was dealing with a lot of internalized homophobia, self-hatred, and it isn't all this one thing. There are other things that come into it. So yeah, that is the cementing part of my mental health journey, which is being very fearful about my sexuality from a very young age, knowing I was gay, knowing what it meant, knowing, like, because I did, I felt like an alien amongst everyone, you know? And it wasn't, people like to come in with a religion and stuff, and it was like, that didn't even come in with at all. I had family members from all parts who would openly say stuff that was quite homophobic, because it was just Yeah, the it was culture. a norm, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I remember I was at my grandma's once, and I was think, saying, I think I was about nine, and I was like, I think I want to be a solicitor. And she was like, you don't want to be a solicitor, they're all gay. <laughs> I was like, okay. Not sure how many solicitors she's met. <laughs> maybe the ones in Soho, maybe. I know, but... <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It was such a weird stereotype because I've never heard that one. I mean, if I said something like, oh, I want to be a hairdresser, you know, I could maybe understand. Yeah, maybe even the media personality, I don't know. I don't know, but. That's a, a weird one, solicitor. solicitor. I'm really sorry, any solicitors listening. Um, my grandma thought you were gay, but it's okay. Being yeah, exactly. Awesome. You told me a story, mate, off air about a tutu your sister had, which she used oh for ballet when you were seven to eight years old. Now, she stopped the ballet, oh, but she kept it in the house, and you felt a desire to so wear what? it, exactly. What this sounded like yeah. as quite a sweet story to me of gay exploration and discovery actually turned into something quite traumatic for you T. why was that why did it it did. Why did it cause you so much pain it did so i remember going with me parents and sister when she went to get it because used to pick them up from ballet too and i was always thinking oh i want to do that but there was always this one lad that was 
in his t-shirt and shorts and he looked miserable and I was like ah you wanted to do what they're doing and now they're making you do that and I was like if I got sent to ballet that's what they would do for me because I was a boy and and I knew that and me sister's like five years older I think she did it for like a competition and then it sat at the bottom of our cupboard for years a few years after and I remember thinking "Mm, she's not using it and I had this thing about wearing other people's clothes even hand-me-downs if somebody had worn it I would be very like oh about it for whatever reason even though I lived on hand-me-downs as a kid it just felt I didn't like wearing other people's clothes so I took solace in the fact that it was maybe used once and forgotten about and one day when I was about seven I was home alone my dad was doing gardening everyone else was out and I was just like I'm gonna go do it so I went into the cupboard, grabbed it, and then ran into the bathroom, and I had this big long standing mirror, and I put it on, and I just looked in the mirror, and I was just really, really happy, and I just thought, oh, this is really, like, this is what I want to <laughs> do, or, and I'm not be, but this is just what I want to do, so I started jumping around, like, totally, it was really 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 cringy really good, <laughs> you're a kid mate we're all cringy this, that this age went... <laughs> i know i know but it was also, it was really sweet too but anyway so that went on f- for quite a few weeks and months actually where i was just kind of doing it in private just dancing and stuff and you know <laughs> you know and one day it was definitely on a school break or something and me mum and brother were out they gave me dabs in the garden my sister was five years older so she was with friends whatever so I was pretty much in the house in my room and I was sat down wearing this tutu and I was playing with me cars holding both genders in equal tandem like, there mate <laughs> exactly I was just like I was just like it's fucking great this you know and um I got really tired and you know and I, I just kind of at this point I'd lost the major worry of sneaking around and, and doing that and what I I thought, oh, I'm just going to lie down. So I lay down in bed and I had this little snooze. And then I woke up to me mum and brother coming home. And my brother was all straight to me to harass us. So, you know, just to be a big brother as they do. And I'm in my room and I'm in the bed and I just decide to go under the quilt. And I kind of grab the quilt all the way to me face sort of thing. And my brother bursts in the room and it's the middle of the day in the summer. And he's like, what are you doing? I was like. Oh, I'm sleeping. And he was like, you're not. So he just ripped off the covers. And he just went, oh, Mom! And then my mother came in, and I was freaking the fuck out, like, at this point. So I was on the bed, and I was just having a meltdown. So I'm, like, jumping up and down. I'm waving my arms, like, flapping. And this is making them laugh a lot more, too, because it's making the tutu, like, mm. go up and down. And then hysterics. My mom's like, do you want to do ballet? And I was like, no, even though I wanted to. <laughs> And my brother thought it was great, and he went and told me dad. I was so worried. I didn't know till years later, because I thought my dad didn't know. But obviously, my brother first went straight to tell me dad in the garden. And for some reason, I thought my dad never knew, because he'd never raised it. He never mocked us or anything like that for it. But apparently, on the day that my brother did it, my brother thought it was the greatest thing ever. It was like the ultimate humiliation for your little brother. My dad was just like, just leave him alone. And and it was so surprising because I think, again, parents kind of know with the kids as well. 
And my dad was a minor as well. My dad's like a hard dude. He's not like the toughest man in the world, but he's definitely in like that sort of Yeah, that mould. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was very shocked to hear that later on, but I don't think it was as big as a an issue as I thought it would be, but it was all those messages and I was a very mm. liberal person and I was very much talking about or hearing all these messages and internalizing them and because that's what we do we, just, we don't voice these things we just let it run around and around and around when in fact i don't think they would have really had much of a problem no, with neither it. do i mate neither do i at all i want to talk no. about secondary school now because you talked about primary school and the fact that you were probably a little bit of a bully towards kids but there were some factors behind yeah. that i want to talk about secondary school now because you didn't hit puberty till pretty late. So you stayed quite small for a boy of your age, height wise. And then you started to get bullied here. So what was your mental health like at this point? And how did that manifest? So I was under a different system. First of all, we had the three tier system. So we had first school, middle school. Oh, did you? In the UK? That's weird. Yeah, I know. I don't think they do that anymore. Only with private schools (laughs) when they keep them in there for a few extra years in private. No, I wasn't. No, it definitely wasn't private. Anyway, so first school ruled it. Absolutely ruled the whole thing. That was like, that was my school in a way. (laughs) I was the little shit. Middle school that's when the dynamic really started shifting because I was always the short one, even in primary school. And I was like well known for being the shortest. There's always one, isn't there? Yeah. Even shorter than, yeah. And I mean, it was quite something because there was also a really short girl as well who tend to be the shortest anyway. And I'm just like totally tiny, but I'm still quite boisterous at that stage. And I'm still, you know, a little bit confident, a little bit cocky. My brother was three grades in front of me, if that makes sense, or three years ahead. So when I was in year five, he would have been year eight. So in middle school, I definitely had that element of protection for two years. Then that gap became quite critical at at about year seven or eight, which is the last two years of middle school. And then I noticed all my friends just all summer just going... Imagine like plants, yeah, just voices dropping, balls dropping, like heights going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. They're just going like, <laughs> yeah, like, almost no, overnight, no. isn't it? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. And I'm just still tiny, and nothing's changing. I remember specifically the summer holiday break between year eight and year nine, which is when you go from middle to high school, was crazy. All my friends, every single one of them, just went through puberty at that point, and. I'm just sat there going, okay, I guess it'll be at the end of summer. And then summer comes, and I'm like, oh, I guess it'll be at another point. And it never just quite came. So in year nine, it was really cute and everything for a year nine to come in and be tiny. And everyone's like, oh, look at them. They look like a little child and sort of thing. And then by year 10, it wasn't really cute anymore kids coming in the year below me were bigger than us and it stopped becoming like an awe novelty and more like fuck off you know sort of thing and and no one really wanted to hang around because I was like kind of like a little kid in a way I suppose me friends they were doing things like going out drinking they were going to see 18 movies not that people really cared that much in the early 2000s anyway who went to see it but whenever I went with them, there was always a problem. They always thought, he can't come in 
where's his ID? And one of them would have to pretend to be me big brother or something like that, even though I was older than them most of the time. And it was like, it was just so... That's emasculating, isn't it, really? It was really, yeah, really isolating. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is emasculating. That's a good way of putting it. And by GCSEs, I mean, voice still hadn't broke and I was still still under five foot and stuff. I was having a shit time in high school. It just draws a big target on your back when you're that kind of isolated and vulnerable. And I don't deal that well with confrontation. So I'd maybe have a meltdown if somebody like confronted us too much and other kids pick up on that. So I would just have these sessions in high school where our school wasn't the choice school for teachers to go to, so we did have a lot of absent teachers in classes that would come in like halfway through and just didn't seem to give a shit, to be honest. And the first half hour of the class was just everyone just laughing at me, getting tortured by bullies in various different ways. They would set us on fire, they would slap us in the face, they would throw hydrochloric acid at us. They would throw books at us, they would take the stool from under my seat. They were tormentors to get us to... To break down, yeah. Yeah, to have a breakdown, and then I'll try and hit them back, but then they were just like, I'm tiny. So I'd be like, what are you doing? This is funny. There was just nothing I could do. And meanwhile, at home, my parents were kind of going through a divorce. My dad wasn't there much. My brother was away in the army. My sister was at uni. My mom wasn't dealing very well with all the stuff that she'd been putting up with me dad you know, and I was just having a shit time all over, and I was also dealing with a medical issue with one of my ears. I had what's called cholesterol hematoma, which is it's like a cyst in your ear, but it wasn't getting picked up properly, and it was just getting misthingied as just a normal infection, but by the time it actually did get picked up, the cholesterol hematoma had actually eaten part of my eardrum, and it was destroyed, so I had to have a mastoidectomy, which is where they just basically scoop the whole thing out. So I've got a bone anchor here in, it, in place now. But as that was going on for two or three years, what it does is it destroys the flesh and yet yeah, it ne- necrotizes, mm-hmm. so it's dead flesh. So that produces the smell of the dead coming out of your ear. And in high school, that was pretty fucking brutal because I wasn't able to control it. So that triggered me anxiety off too. And then I had the bullies, and then I had stuff going on with my parents, and then all the shit that was happening online, because, you know, I couldn't really hang out with anyone, and I just became addicted to the computer, playing games, and then going on the internet, and speaking to strangers, Mm. and just telling them absolutely everything, and them mm. kind of taking Before we come to that internet addiction, mate, can we just briefly talk about the mm-hmm. agoraphobia that developed as part of the bullying? Because the bullying stopped you going outside to the point where you became that agoraphobe and you stayed that way for the best part of 15 years, I believe. So did you not want to leave the house because you had that fear that you would be abused anywhere or everywhere you'd go or someone would see you? That was definitely part of it. I wanted to avoid the people that were given from school, especially that were giving me life hell. And I was in a an ex mining town, a population of about thirty five ish thousand. So just to give you a sense of size, you could easily run into people yeah. and recognize each other. And I was just like, I don't want anything to do with them whatsoever. I just want to kind of 
I just didn't want to take the risk. And also, the all the other anxiety was just so hard to go outside. It was like, it felt like an immense, immense task. And my heart would just race and race and race. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I just want to play my games. And that's it. That's all I wanted to do. And there was a lot of different issues at play. There was the internalized fear of being gay. There was the the worry that me year was like stinking and there was nothing I could do about it. No one was taking notice probably of it. And then I had the family stuff and I had the stuff at school, like I said, and uh, I just didn't want to go out. I just wanted to hide away. And I think what I did was dissociate through the means of the computer. I was able to just switch off and be like 12 hours a day, no problem. Even we finally come to the part where we discuss your gender dysphoria tulip. So you told me off air that at this point, you're 10 years old and the gateway to hell, as you called it, has been opened. You've got that computer in your house. You're giving people yeah. your personal details and you're going on these chat rooms yeah. where groomers are lurking. They're phoning you. Yeah. They're asking you to buy a webcam. And then you did. They asked you to expose yourself to them and you did. So who's the little boy we meet here how did that affect you that went on for quite a number of years in various different forms and it wasn't just one specific individual it was very much I had opened myself up to do that because I really wanted to especially as I got to about 13 14 I was very very really wanting to sort of explore that side keep in mind I still went through puberty so I'm going on a chat rooms for gay men and I'm saying, hi, I'm 13, I'm 14, or I'm 12 and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of people got in contact with us and I thought it was just normal when it wasn't. And it, how did it shape me? I think I definitely desired their attention and I still... To this day, I, I can feel myself getting a little bit cringy when I'm speaking to older men who who are very attractive or whatever. And I can, I don't know, I just, it definitely wasn't healthy. And there were people who were definitely ready to take advantage. And the internet was a different place in the very late 90s and early 2000s. It was predominantly just chat rooms. And then that moved over to MSN. See, the thing with the chat room was I had part of that rush of I could go in and be sort of semi-anonymous and do all this sort of thing and then talk with people. But then when stuff like MSN Messenger came in and later on Skype, then they have your handle and yeah, that's, that's when, when it gets it dangerous. Yeah, that's when it gets dangerous, yeah. a bit shit. So I was just doing really stupid things with adults, to be honest, where if I should have been able to do what I wanted to do with me prospective partners. She was saying, yeah, so that was pretty messed up. I'm not going to lie. I don't know the full timeline because it's not something I've sat and wanted to work out. There is definitely huge gaps as well. I don't think it was like ultra traumatic, but it was definitely, uh, there was a lot of coercion there. There was a lot of at points, and as I said this in the voice interview, I wanted to withdraw from them at one point and they became very aggressive in the contact and that's quite a normal thing apparently for kids online experience mm. didn't realize that it wasn't a one-off this isn't like something that stupid gullible kids fall for this is an overtime thing because i was also playing games like unreal tournament and oh, Diablo good games one and two unreal tournament especially oh, yeah and yeah and they all came with chat rooms oh, as God. Well, didn't they? So, yeah 
and I had an obsession with him, so I could talk for hours and hours and hours about it. That was it for me. Because they had the interest, and I had the interest. It was like, I can trust this person. Mm. And as I said, I was extremely naive. Mm. Say so it was. I am still a little <laughs> bit naive now. Your parents began to notice this computer addiction. And there was one occasion where they took your computer away. And, and like an addict having their choice of drug taken away without warning, you had an absolute meltdown. Can you tell me the story behind that? And also what happened a little while after it was taken away? Because you got better and then they gave it back to you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think this was also running alongside with the people who are contacting us. So I really felt like I had to kind of be there all the time. I can't remember the story fully. I can remember the dates, (laughs) but there's a reason why I can't remember it. I remember coming home from school because it was the last day before holiday break and I was thinking, great, I've got two weeks to just play Red Alert, right? <laughs> Love it. Wow. Right. I know, I know. I was like, Red Alert, RTS, Red Alert, man. Bloody hell. Those games, used to, I used oh, to sink so many hours into. What was one I used to have? <sighs> Command and Conquer, Stop. yeah. Stop. I used to play that a lot. Age, Age of, of Empires, Empires, yeah, yeah. The classics. Yeah. So I would think, oh God, I'm going to do all these things. I love, I just, I could do it for, you know, like sink, as you said, sink all my little youth into it. And I came home from school and threw my bag down, went straight to where the computer was because it was in like, it wasn't in anyone's room. It was in like a spare room, as it were. And I went in and it was gone. And that's where my memory ends. (laughs) But I've had the story recounted many times to me. Cross-verification. It was like, so what happened, what my mother said was, is you went fucking mental. Like you were psychotic when you found out. When you were talking about how you were screaming, how you are going to kill her in her sleep, how you were going to slit with throats and all this sort of shit really horrific like i'm not like this at all i'm not a violent person i say that i'm not a violent person but i'm not gonna do this ever but i was so like it was like the taking away and the panic set in and i was like fuck and i couldn't tell them obviously what was going on so i was just like i went absolutely mental i had a huge hissy fit my mega meltdown and this was in the afternoon and by about half eight at night or something, I'd, I'd raged myself into a sleep. And I woke up in the morning and my mum was like, right, we're going to go for a bike ride. And I was like, okay. And I uh, went for a bike ride and I was fine. And then we went for a bike ride, like days and day, like all week for the holiday. And it was just like, my mum was like, it was as if nothing ever happened. It was the weirdest thing ever. I just kind of just accepted that it was gone. And I was just, okay, let's go. And I had a good time outside. But because I was... So open to it and happy to do it and have to go on bike rides. They're like, oh, you can have your computer back. <laughs> and then it was just like, boom. But they didn't know what they were dealing with. The internet was new as well. People don't keep them so with computers. They didn't realize that this could be the force yeah, it, it felt was. so separate to our parents, think, didn't it? It was just that thing in the computer room, <laughs> ironically. Yeah, it was. It was like, I mean, they didn't not understand it, but they didn't understand it the way I did. And if anyone's listening, if you have a child under the age of 18, and I know this may seem like, well, if the a certain age, this had privacy, and I agree, but definitely under 16s, the computer shouldn't be in the room. It should be in a living room. It should be in a family room. It should be where 
you can see what they're doing. You don't have to watch exactly what they're doing, but it's going to massively inhibit what they're going to do with people online if you're if they're in a family room. And it's like, well, you know, they make too much noise. Get them some nice headphones and put a room divider up or something. But I don't know, just don't have it so it's away from other members of the family because that's exactly what happens when you transition as well. You can spend all your time alone online in front of your computer, which is something I've heard a lot from parents too. Some I did as well. Let's talk about your transition now, T. So you get to your early 20s. You wanted to be a therapist and you tried getting on a course, but you didn't have enough academic points to get onto it. You tried a different one. And by the time we'd come Mm -hmm. to the end of it, you're trans. So how did you get to that point? (laughs) I think that was a mix of the course I I was doing was a low level counselling course. It It ended in a foundation degree, but it wasn't like a psychotherapy qualification and like that it was I think they call it the art of counseling it's not even like a a scientific thing but it was all women and there was this one other guy who was gay and at the start I really hated him I was like oh I fucking hate him that's very only gay in the village vibe isn't it someone else (laughs) yeah yeah it was like I didn't know why I hated him and all this sort of thing and a lot of it was just because he was an out gay dude living his life to the best and he was a nice really nice fella as well I was just being a little homophobe at the time because I want to I do admit that freely that I was absolutely 100% homophobic to myself and to other people not like on the street or anything but I would be quite happy to say something was gay or I'm gay or that's that's but going back to it by the end of the course I was also getting therapy outside of that because you do placements and I was doing a placement in a domestic abuse shelter for men and women and that was actually quite a positive work experience as well and I felt like I really was helping people and stuff and I really really got a lot from it but towards the end of the course, I was also finding the online stuff about gender dysphoria and stuff. And now I had these these skills to sort of talk about my emotions because I was totally like dead inside at this point. I was like so closed off and really, really unwell. And I had the tools now to talk about these things that were bothering us. And then the internet is saying this is all because you're trans and then at the end I was like I'm trans I'm LGBT now I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that so that was at 2012 and then in 2013 I'd been diagnosed for OCD at this time and I was in secondary psychological services trying to get help and the guy came back was saying that you've got this it's called pure or yeah I'd have had, um, I had another guess highly, highly, about pure, yeah. yeah it's very very hard yeah yeah very extreme mm. bit of OCD and what it was is I became obsessed with gender and transition that was my new obsession and that's a big part of it a lot of the guys on the discord all have this what we would call trans OCD where oh is this because I'm trans yeah you're ruminating oh because I'm trans did this happen because I'm trans am I like this because I'm trans it never ends and also as I said it gives you a free pass to discount a lot of issues that you're faced with bullying with trauma with school development and various other different things it gives you permission to put all your problems on this one thing and I was very happy with that and for a time I thought oh this is great I'm gonna be happy this way so and 
2013, I was well online. I was telling people what I was going to do and all this sort of thing and what my plan was. And I'd learned exactly what I needed to do. I, I knew at this point that to transition on the NHS, first you had to get into the gender clinic service, which was at the time a two-year wait, which is now like four and a half, five years or something. Crazy long wait. I knew that even though I had a, a very late puberty at 24, 25, I, was, I could feel testosterone taken over my body. And one narrative that one of the guys actually talked about in his own posts was this whole testosterone is poison message that was coming out at the time. Like, you know, you don't want tail turning into a man uh, and all this sort of thing. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack so there. I, but yeah. It is, it is. There's so much to unpack here, my friend. It's crazy. We're, we're going to need to hire some, like, delivery men or something. <laughs> to <unpack all> this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was trying to work through all these issues and assumed it was all because I was trans and I was very much obsessed with it. And I'd realized that I couldn't get seen by the gender clinic straight away. I'd called me doctor and at the end of 2013 to get a referral, but I knew it was going to take a while. So at the end of 2013, I paid for a private assessment to get what's called a, like a, a pre-diagnosis of transsexualism, as they called it. So I got a full diagnosis of transsexualism after two appointments within three days Holy of each other moly. from okay. this private, private independent. And that gave me the ability to start what's called bridging hormones. So if you can't afford a private script because... I went in a debt to get these private assessments as well. I went into a lot of debt. I was supporting myself and I was earning close to minimum wage at the time. So I didn't have much money. And I was just like, oh, fuck it. I'll just get a payday loan and just do it and all these other things. So I got my diagnosis and the original letter was like, I'd came in and I was very adamant about this and all this sort of thing. And I was just like, I need this now. I managed to get what's called a testosterone blocker in the form of gozerillin probably always i've misspelled it on my own notes but, to be honest when you talk to me about it i spelled it as gofalin yeah, but i don't so, think it's spelled that way <laughs> it's, no it's not so this is a implant it comes in two forms you've got the four weekly implant and the 12 weekly one so this is injected into your abdomen and it will dissolve after 12 weeks but what it does is it stops the testicles from secreting testosterone <sighs> So it's a testosterone blocker that is used. It's a chemical sort of thing that is used normally for prostate cancer patients. But what it also does is it shrinks the prostate because that's the whole purpose of it. It's an antiandrogen. So I got put on that in, I would say, at the start of 2014. But I was still waiting for the gender clinic. So I successfully blocked my testosterone at about 25 I would say and this isn't long after actually grown into an adult so I wasn't totally fully fledgedly developed I'd, I'd, I couldn't even grow a beard at that point or anything and then I went straight on to the blockers and I was on no hormones blocked only for about two years before I started estrogen and I got estrogen, obviously, through the gender clinic at this point as well. 
Oh, no, I want to talk about that completely. Mm. That's a whole other freaking story. Yeah, the um, clinic. Before we talk about the surgery, mate, I just want to briefly go back to a point where you were on these chat rooms and the forums. I definitely want to talk about this briefly if we can. I know this will be painful for you, but I, I think it's important to tell as part of your story because you were encouraged to go to another trans site where one person said to you on there when you disclosed you weren't feeling confident with your body or maybe even your sexuality mm-hmm. to try hooking up with people or try hook up culture yeah and you went through that i won't disclose too much more details than that but the partners you were being with were quite a lot older than you so what effect did that have on you and did it ever feel dangerous it was very dangerous what i was doing so i said my thing was i wasn't sure what i wanted to do with surgery and that i think i knew i didn't really want to do surgery and I was looking for somebody to say, you know, it's okay if you don't want to do it. You know what I mean? That's what I was looking for. And this other trans person got us on this site where you could chat with quote-unquote admirers and stuff. And it was extremely, extreme. Like, you know, so I'm a homosexual, transsexual, as it were. And I look young. And when I dressed the part, I looked the part and I could sound the part. You definitely told me you could sound the part when we spoke off air and you tested that voice. Bloody hell. Yeah. (laughs) So. um, Don't do it again. Don't worry. No, no, I'm not going to do it again. So these men are just like apps because that's what it's about for them as well. It's a big sexual kick for them as well. Seeing a young male who looks very feminine and. I got absolutely littered and showered with compliments and stuff like that. But again, totally naive, had no idea. Like, I didn't think I was doing anything stupid or wrong. And just meeting these total strangers and then having sex. Horrible sex, by the way. Because it wasn't, like, I'm a bottom, anyway, which means... We know the listeners will know what that means. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm dealing with these dudes who are way older, way bigger as well. I'm not short, short, but I'm not huge as well. You know, you're on your front and there's nothing much you can do when you're on your front. You know what I mean? I had some really dodgy experiences with that and I obviously stopped doing that when it was a bit bad and all the time I never really thought about how dumb it was what I was doing. It felt very much like they want me and Mm. there's this sort of desire and stuff and it it very much felt like I was kind of repeating what I did a decade and a bit earlier online but in person and it was just such a stupid risk and I absolutely regret doing that and in the same talk and I went to my gender therapist who had 97 sessions with by the way over five years which is unprecedented and I'm telling him about these experiences and he's like, yeah, that's kind of proof that you don't like the gay experience then, isn't it? You know, that's in me notes, actually. I can't wait until the solicitor sees that one because I've got a solicitor coming soon. My whole case is like, there's all these comorbid things and people like to think that, oh, you weren't honest. You tricked the therapist. And I was like, nope, I told them absolutely everything. I was upfront about all my fuck-ups. I was upfront about everything. The only thing I didn't go into in immense detail was the grooming online because that took a long time mm-hmm. to accept for what it was. I was very much in the mindset that I was in control then, but the reality is there's probably pictures of me from that age online now. Like, I've got no idea if that's that is but you know you're talking four years 
worth of sharing from 12 to 16 in the early internet mm. so who knows i'm not gonna ask anyone to go looking for it or no but it just kind of yeah, disturbs us imagine, in a way. let's talk about the surgery that you had in as little or as much detail as you want mate because in 2016 you mm-hmm. were seeing that therapist and they asked you if you wanted gender reassignment surgery and that's an ethical question which i'm not going to go into on this podcast but just briefly mate, they told you if you said no they discharge you so the listeners know what was said can you tell me about the thought process in the run-up to going through with the surgery oh god so the surgery journey begins from when you go into the gender clinic and they'll say do you want genital reconstruction surgery to which my answer when i joined was i don't think so and that's fine so i was still getting my treatment and there was no pressure and at the end of 2015, when I was only a few months enrolled into it, and I'd snuck me way past the waiting list, which is another story, and I pissed off all the local trans community by doing it, because there was like this waiting time, and they're all sitting patiently, and I'm like calling every day, like, have you got any free appointments? I'll take them. You know what I mean? And yeah, I was very, very adamant, and I, was, I wanted to get a threat. But at the end of 2015, they were like, so what are your plans for GRS? And I was like, I don't think I want it, but obviously I was starting therapy. And they're like, okay, then have some therapy. And then in 2016, in about April, they went, so do you want do you want surgery? And I was like, I don't think I do, to be honest. I'm not sure. And they said, okay, then, because you're on your HRT, you're settled in your social role, well, then, look, I'm discharging you. But I'm getting therapy at this point, and I'm thinking, oh, does that mean I'll get discharged? And I'm like, yeah, because there's nothing else. But I was too scared to say, well, what about me therapy in that? It was just, you'll just get discharged. So... I went back to the therapist and I was talking about like sort of being unsure again. And then at my next six monthly review, I was like, yeah, okay, referrers. So this is mid 2016 and I got referred, I had to go to an independent, which was that, do you know that private independent that I went mm-hmm. to the first time? And you should see the letter from them. It's it's absolutely mad. In the my mum went with us to that appointment and we were talking about how much I'd feared surgery, risk of complications, and I've got it in black and white, her recommendation just being, that's extremely rare, not many people regret it, and I recommend that you should go through it. And I've got that in black and white from her. And I also had the assessments at the gender clinic as well, and it was just a tick box exercise, it felt like. A referral letter came through for Brighton at the end of 2016 and I shot myself and I was like, I don't want to do this. So I put it off again and I said, can I have more time? Yeah, you can have more time. And then early 2017 came and I was doing the same dance and by March 2017 I'd made a declaration with my therapist that I was planning on taking me on life and I laid out how I was going to do it. And then he wrote my doctor to express concern and then a month later, saw my psychiatrist, separate from a gender therapist, by the way, at the gender clinic, didn't mention any of that, and was just like, do I die? Do you want to get referred? And I was like, okay, then refer us. And I got referred in like a month after being very suicidal to Brighton. And I had me pre-op and post-op assessments at the end of 2017, early 2018, but because I'd waited and delayed, your referral for surgery only lasts 12 months, you see? So I had to get it redone twice by two more independents. So I've been diagnosed with 
gender dysphoria apparently like nine times now or something it's ridiculous even though they're all like especially the first one like doing it within a week and all the mistakes that are on it like spelling mistakes and they just didn't really listen or just give us it just give us what i wanted no questions asked sort of thing and then on the lead up to surgery i was also getting hair removal down below and because there was unlimited appointments to it i was kind of sabotaging these appointments and it meant that they would have to push everything back and it meant i would get another therapy session in between when this is one of the reasons why i had 97 therapy sessions because i knew fucking damn well fine that i was i wanted this therapy and i was also extremely distressed i wasn't in a rational state at this point and I felt calm and everyone was worried. My mom was really worried. She was thinking I was going to make a huge mistake. But I was so worried about her worry that I didn't want to really speak about it too much. And spoke to my dad and my brother for years at that point anyway. So they weren't really stopping us. And my friends who had had it and friends who had had really shit results. I was asking them, I was like, how is it? How is it? Is it okay? Is it okay? And they were like, it's fine. It's okay. And they just wouldn't tell you. They wouldn't tell you what the reality was. And it's because I think it's partly for themselves too, because there is a lot of horrible results out there. Leading up to to surgery, I wasn't in a great health. I was still really, really struggling with a lot of different things. And somehow just got the sign off for it. And I just kind of was like, whatever. And in the surgery, I nearly died from bleeding because I lost 1,600 milliliters of blood and I had to have a blood transfusion and stuff. And then when I woke up from surgery, I realized straight away like how much I'd fucked up. And I was just like, well, well, oops. So many people, when they wake up from surgery, just spend a week crying and it's like, I'm so happy, but they're not happy. I've seen a couple TikTok videos about it. They break my heart every time I see them. It's like that sort of feeling and people are just kind of devastated, but they're taught that they want to be happy and all this sort of thing. But my surgery lasted about three hours longer than it should have because the blood lost mainly. And in terms of result, like if I was walking naked, you just think it was just female genitalia, to be honest. Like it would, it does look like that, to be fair, from the outside. On the inside, it's much smaller than a woman's actual vagina. It doesn't self-lubricate. It's not completely dry, but the problems I had went with sensation. And I would say I've got about 40% sensation in me growing from what I had before in various different areas. I've got lots of dead areas where there's nothing happening at all, like because all the nerves are shot and stuff. I am able to climax, but I'm not really interested in using it, obviously. And I've got friends who have got zero sensation, never been able to climax since surgery. Some people have just left it closed and that causes all sorts of infections. But my problem was all down with me urethra. So if you imagine a straw that gets bent, you know, that, that kind of what happened to me. So I was in agony for the first few months. I had a catheter in for ages and... Um, the way to fix it was to shorten it again and then to dilate it in a general anesthetic and I'm going through this process every two to five years where I'm going to need my urethra reinflated essentially because it keeps getting crushed because the angle because it's not natural for it to happen because it's been weaved in a in a weird way and it's it's like a straw trying to bend a straw in a way 
so I'm constantly having a lot of urinary issues with that. That means that after going to the toilet, I can just drip for about an hour, easy. So I'm constantly having to wear sanitary pads to manage with a mild incontinence. Otherwise, I'll just stink a piss. Obviously, I don't want to smell a piss. And the dilation and stuff isn't as horrific as I thought it would be. People are like, oh, you're going to dilate for the rest of your life. You you don't. Maybe five times a year, and that will keep you healthy. But I'm also, when I'm showering, I'm doing the medical cleaning side of things, like with douches and stuff, to make sure I'm not getting any nasty infections or anything like that. So I am keeping myself clean, and I'm maintaining it at the lowest point. But outside that, I can't really... I can't really undo that one and my mum was like when I came out as D-Trans she was like are you gonna have more surgery to go back I was like fuck no and she was like thank god you've had enough like you, your body's been through enough just mm. give it a break sort of thing so yeah the surgery results are absolutely you know mine was actually on the grand scheme of things actually really good and that's terrible isn't it like I've got sensation which is rare not many people do some people do I don't know what the exact ratio is, but I know so many people who have got nothing and they get lots of other problems and pain. And they don't tell anyone either because they've got their own worry, I suppose. It's on their own psychological thing of admitting that maybe this wasn't the best idea and maybe it was really fucking dumb. You know, it's very, very difficult for them. I'm not saying that they're all to blame, but if somebody asks me now who's trans about surgery, I'm just like, I highly recommend you don't get surgery. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell them where to go to find the information about getting surgery too. So they can see the things that are filtered. You can go on Reddit right now and look up stuff about surgery and you can see that it's been constantly deleted and hidden by moderators and other people in the community because they say it's been weaponized against us and all this bullshit. It's not about weaponization. It's about the truth that these surgeries don't actually give the quality of life that people are after. It makes the quality of life worse. It's also to do about like standards of consent as well. I'm an adult and obviously that is part of it, but all the core morbid issues I had just were just ignored at that point and it was just a total like let down and no one should be so easily able to do that it's so fucking big to have your genitals turned inside out right you can't fucking undo that and it's just like yeah shit why not you go ahead and do that and it's just like you have loads of people who die post-op because they kill that take their own lives and everyone's like oh it's transphobia it's unacceptance society i'm like no it's people who realize how monumentally they're fucked up And the trans movement love it when, and I know this is a horrible thing to say, but if somebody takes their own life, the ghoul over that death, like, see, it's proof. It's proof of how hard it is in society to live as a trans person. And, well, actually, what it's proof of is that the medicalization is leading to more death, and you don't want to have that conversation because you're worried about what you want and your own needs that you're worried that somebody might stop giving you HRT or something, which is never going to happen, by the way. And they become so focused on rescuing and saving them themselves for 
you know, they don't want to risk losing the treatment as well, I think, because in their head, this is the one solution, and to lose this solution is to kill them. I very, very much believe that this was the one and only thing too, and obviously it's not. So they view it as an existential threat of their existence mm. as well, which is why they don't want to talk about it. But I think that what will happen is we will just end up pausing all these surgeries completely. I think it will stop happening, apart from private clinics yeah. and stuff. Can you tell me about the detransition process now and the role that a website, which was very niche, that you told me about called Kiwi Farms, which you described as the black hole <laughs> of the internet. Why was that website so key to your transition? What did detransition? Sorry, what did you find here? So Kiwi Farms is a site dedicated to internet personalities, people who make themselves available in the social sphere, and they just basically sit and observe and watch. So. They look at things that are called lol cows. That's somebody who can be milked for lols. For instance, you know, there are a lot of major people in the public sphere that are lol cows because they keep saying stupid things. They keep They're walking L machines. Yeah. That's it. Yes. And they also do a lot of commentary on communities and stuff like that. But it's not done in the same way Twitter discourse is done. It's very, very unfiltered. You can say literally anything. There is no feeling spared and it can be extremely like cut to the bone sort of thing. They are an extremely misrepresented group because they don't pursue or harass anyone. They report. So they will like document stuff that this person has put out. So, so they, don't, they don't dox um, people, they report if, doxing. Is that correct? No, 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 no. They don't dox people at all. They basically report the details that that person has put up themselves. So it's not as if they've found out their social media. This person has presented their social media online in various different fashions. And all they've done is put all that information together, saying this is what they posted here and then. So what essentially happens is... This is based on information people have already presented themselves. It's like they've given it and stuff. And they only try and track people down when there's like a reason to. So they're quite responsible for bringing a few people to justice as well. People don't realize that, you know, you had that, I can't remember what he was called, horrible person who's a zoophile, you know, you, you would have sex with dogs and stuff, oh, right. horrible person. He got pretty much tracked down by the farms and they're very good at getting to the bottom of stuff. But like I said, when it comes to the sort of, do they do it with kindness or anything, there is no feeling spared there. So there is no allegiances to, it's very much, they're just in it for the lols. And when it comes to the trans stuff, they like to comment on trans stuff a lot. So... Again, no feeling spared. They have some great threads about surgery. They've got some great threads about trans people, trans personalities, and they've got a great thread about people who are trans on social media who are taking, how should I say, they're not doing themselves any favours. You know, it's not as if this is somebody politely sitting back and having a discussion about sexual development or anything like that. These are people who are just lolcows. You know what I mean? Anyway, so I saw on the on the farms about all the stuff about surgery, and I wish I'd saw that before I had surgery. It just wasn't available to us 
because at the time I was also thinking, because there's always one more surgery, you see, I was thinking I'd get facial feminization surgery where they, they'll like shave off your bones and stuff and they'll cut your forehead uh, top, peel it back and then shave down your brow bones and stuff like that and recontour your face and it's really horrific. And it's very expensive and I was looking into that. I was, I was like thinking, I'm going to get FFS even though I didn't really need it. It's just a trans thing. And I was looking at the FFS results on Kiwi Farms, and I saw the surgery stuff, and then I saw what they were saying about trans people, and especially trans people who I thought, like, they kind of, they don't look specifically outwardly trans, but everyone on the farms was just ripping them to shreds. And I was like, wow, this is kind of what people think, isn't it? This is exactly how many people think and it was given as a perspective that I wasn't allowed to get anywhere because it was deemed as transphobic and hateful and I'm not gonna lie it's not exactly done and as I said it's not executed with perfect kindness obviously you know you're dealing with people who just kind of don't give a a shit about all the politics they just want to say what's on their mind and they do and it's an immensely powerful platform because of that so that was a big part of my journey and I know a lot of others have seen Kiwi Farms and that has stopped people getting surgery as well because they see the horrors, they see what it looks like, they see all these different complications that come up that aren't being discussed that are hidden elsewhere and they're just like fuck that, no way, if that was on like the front page of Reddit or something everyone else would stay the same but you know, there's a reason we've got kids like holding up jars with the uterus in, thinking that. Like, Holy cool. moly! You know what I mean? No. Have you seen that one? Oh mate! Oh god! So there's this. Do I want to know? Um, Go on then. Might as well. Yeah. She. I, I don't know how old she is. She's young. I would say she's an older teenager, very early twenties possibly. But a TikTok trending video. She had a hysterectomy, not because she needed one, but because she was obviously trans and having trans surgeries and um she asked our surgeon to put her uterus in a jar and then she had a tiktok video to oh show off her uterus God. and it's just like wow you're showing off your lobotomization that's on, on tiktok forever it's on tiktok yeah jesus christ big one Fuck <laughs> me that is bonkers so where was i with that you were talking health? about the tiktoker uh, with the uterus so yeah Ah, the TikTok and the uterus, my goodness. So you're getting all these people with like post in the, the mastectomy scars and they don't look happy at all. You can see the expression in the face. It's like hide the pain, Harold sort of thing. And it's like, look at my commitment to the belief because it is a it's a physical anchor. Once you go through that, it's very hard to detach because you think, oh, fuck, I've had surgery now. What's the point in going back? right and it's a way to sort of separate as i call it the opus day which is a contingent of the catholic church which did used to you know there was a lot of like body mutilation and then sacrifice to sort of show your commitment and stuff and that's exactly where we're at with the trans thing it's like getting surgery is your ultimate sort of commitment to to be in a member it proves your dysphoria to everyone else it proves that you are more trans than anyone else because you had to have surgery. It means that you've also got this weird authority when you're speaking on trans stuff because you had surgery and you've had that experience and it's like you're kind of an elevated member of that belief because you've had it. 
because if there is a conversation, it's like, well, as somebody who's had surgery, duh, 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 and you, you hear that sort of line a few times. But yeah, we have definitely reached the peak horror, dystopian nightmare with kids with showing the uteruses and jars and stuff like that, thinking it's cool. But they're gonna look on that in horror, like that's gonna that's gonna haunt them. When do you think that's coming? Time. Do you think that's coming now? Or uh, we're at the prefaces of the detransition wave. So what we're saying at the minute is, so the detransition movement probably started about twenty eight, like really, really started about twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. And there have been people who have been in this game far longer than I have. I'm a latecomer at this stage, I feel like. Even though you think there's not that many detransitioners, this whole narrative has been in the background for quite some time. What will happen is, and this is all backed up by studies on detransitioners, so the average time for a detrans woman to be trans is about five and a half years. And I'll get you the link mm-hmm. for this study for your podcast. Whereas the length for a detransition male to be trans is about seven say, five say, to I'd assume years. it'd be longer because of the stigma associated with it, yeah. I would say it's that, but I would so also say that girls tend to be a little bit more head socially right. than boys. And I think it's just a case that they also have a better landing. Okay. The love bombing and stuff like that you talked you know, about previously. Well, if you are a trans man and you're now saying you're a woman and you go into these organizations that can embrace you in open arms because this is exactly the narrative they're talking about, like harm to women and stuff. So they get swooped in easily. With the guys, there's not very many places you can go. So a lot of them end up just retransitioning because there isn't any support in place. That's how the old one, the old group kind of fell apart because some of the main guys just had enough and retransition yeah, i saw which, i saw robin wanted, another detransitioner who said he was going back on hrt and then just stepped back so yeah it's very very difficult like people you have to understand it's not just something that you can sit and live with like when you got people who have took hrt when they were in the middle of puberty and they'll never grow again that they'll never have secondary development down below this sort of thing and it's very very hard for them to try and ease back in and I mean what about me like what do I do when it comes to changing rooms what do I do when it comes to swimming what do I do when it comes to stuff like toilets and that? have you ever been to a guy's toilets Ugh. you know what I mean and it's not as if I can stand up anymore and do that but yeah so anyway what will happen with this whole as this unfolds we're in the the turn court stage as I call it so this is where you're going to get people who have being complicit in treating treating trans people calling raising the alarm about how it's went too far and all this sort of shit and these people are just trying to save their own skin and they know it's common because it's being discussed in parliament at senate in the u.s we've got mps getting involved we've got solicitors waiting to take on a plethora of these cases and it will be the legal backlash is the next stage it's like when that comes it's gonna overwhelm everything it's just gonna absolutely dominate the conversation completely but we're in the turncourt stage of the detransition wave because they can see the wave coming and they think fuck i'm gonna get hit by this wave i need it i need to like you know repent as it were and uh, make sure I'm one of the good ones. So I'm seeing a lot of people trying to come forward and save their own skin, and I'm just thinking, mm, that's all good and well you're saying that, but how many people have you trapped in your time? And I'm just thinking, you know what I mean? So after this, what will happen is you'll have the first major legal cases coming, 
and then that will open up the floodgates for more legal cases. And in the meantime, you've got the culture side of DTRANS becoming more aware and more mainstream. And that will make other people realize that, oh, well, actually, this is the niche now. This is the cool thing now because trans is everywhere. And the whole reason people went for the trans thing was so they could be a little bit unique and a little bit more stand out from everyone else. And now everyone's LGBTQ, IBQ, blah, 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 whatever the fuck it is now. So what goes against the grain? Being day trans. And I'm already starting to see it trending on TikTok. So the trend, the social trend is going to overtake everyone very soon. And you've also got the honeymoon period. Remember that five and a half, seven and a half years, I said, for the male and female day transitioners? That's coming to an end. It really took off in 2014. And I'm actually right on time, <laughs> personally, for the detransition timeline. I am way, way on time, and other people are too. And the reason why there's been so many women first is because they are about two years behind and sort, well, ahead, mm -hmm. I suppose, in from what studies say. And I, I would say a lot of that is also to do with how women are socialized to be more yes. open about their concerns and thoughts, whereas... Because I don't believe in gendered brain bullshit. And I do believe hormones can change. And just biological you, sex differences. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But I don't think there is a mega difference between our brains at all. I think the difference in brains is more on the individual mm -hmm. level rather than the sex level. And I don't know why people get too caught up on that. But anyway, for whatever reason, they've got more, the more willing to sort of, I think women as well have a lot more leeway in gender nonconformity yes. anyway. So it's like, oh, well, I just want to be a feminine man. I want to be a gay man. And then, you know, the D-trans pipeline, there's a great meme. Beware the D-trans pipeline. It was originally used as as a meme, like beware the trans pipeline for male to females, but it got flipped on its head. It was just showing you what happened. So you get, especially with trans men, that go through this bit of, oh, I'm he, him. I know I'm, I'm yeah, he, they. they, he have seen a lot. I'm yeah, they, yeah. they, them. I'm they, she. I'm she, her. I'm D-trans. You know what I mean? It's like this stepping stone into it where I was just like, oh, fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. And I was just like, whatever. And I just skipped all those steps. And I was like, I'm just changing my name back. Mm. Um, Let's reflect then on your journey before we do our quick fire mental health chat questions, T. If you could go back and talk to that, seven-year-old T who was socking other kids maybe bullying other kids at worst the 11-year-old T who had not gone through puberty and was getting bullied himself maybe the 13 14-year-old T who was being groomed online or maybe the T who was in his mid-20s about to go through with that social transition and medical transition what would you say to him knowing what you do now um, I think I understand the purpose of these questions and it's all about like sort of forgiveness and moving on and all that sort of thing. But what I want people to understand is there really is no going back. There is no talking to those people as much as a lovely thought as it is. And I understand why you ask it and I'm not. <laughs> it's an open question, away, mate. You can say anything you want. <laughs> I know. And what I want to, I really want to say is like, I can't though, can I? I can't go back and talk to them no matter how much I want to and tell them how much they fucking kick ass and how much fire they've got in the heart and how kind they can be. But also 
I think if I was to give them any advice, it would just be, you know, you just need to take your time. You need to learn how to take your time, whatever it is, whatever, anything, like responding to people or thinking about something or what you want to do or buying a car and it was just whatever. Take your bloody time. Don't rush into things. It doesn't have to be done now. So I would say that that was a big part of it as well, but I also accept that there is part of me that thinks that if I went back to me who was transition, and other trans men have said this too, a de-trans men, sorry, that my 25-year-old self would have told mm. me to fuck off, like, properly. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I appreciate the question, but it is quite nuanced as well. Our final topic of conversation, mate, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? I definitely have more good days than bad days, but, you know, some days can be very, very, very Mm -hmm. difficult given just kind of realising everything you've been through and sort of thing. And sometimes it can be very overwhelming and you can catastrophize and I feel really awful sometimes and then I've got I've got cats and my cat will just come up to us and all of a sudden I'm just pulled out of it and those are the worst bits but I'm not like sitting grieving or, or mourning or sitting in tears or anything but I would say bad thoughts around me on well-being and stuff and I am battling with that I want to be honest with that that, that is something that I am dealing with but the rest of the time I feel really happy I feel really settled I don't feel afraid mm. anymore that's a big thing fear ruled my life all my life and now I just don't give a fuck not in a careless mm. sort of I'm gonna insult anyone and I'm gonna hurt other people don't give a fuck it was more of the I'm not really worried about this thing whatever it was before it's gone this fear and I think I've kind of faced most of them over the last few years and that makes us feel immensely strong too but I do have a lot of moments when I don't feel strong so my mental health is up and down but I do have lots of moments where I get like an unexpected boost like when JK Rowling sends a message saying how she supports all the transitioners and she's very positive about getting support for men and women and she's just such a lovely individual and I couldn't believe like I remember waking up thinking what the fuck I was like what just seeing like a message from her and that and I was a little bit starstruck, to be you honest. You would be. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've had a few others, like, followers and reach out to us. No one as legendary as JK. I've had Book Angel as well, and I've been retweeted and stuff by, like, a few big names in this movement, she was saying. I definitely feel like I've now got, like, a very a good standing voice mm. for the detrans male so, perspective. Yeah, definitely for, for the gay side as well, because I think... Olympida's really good at representing the sort of the straight aside and the messages that have happened externally because it isn't just all about one thing people always looking for one thing to blame you know there are many 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 different factors that that come into it but yeah overall I would say it's good and I'm also walking a lot more I would love to join a gym but I'm really really self-conscious about my body what changing room to use you don't need to use a changing room um, mate you can just walk in love... do your weights and walk out 
Yeah. I suppose what I do. Because it's not that far away. Yeah, I should just do that and bollocks yeah. the change. Yeah, just, good just change before you leave. Wear a yes. hoodie and, you know, training kit or whatever you need to do. Work out. Walk home. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. It's, good, for me. it's good strategy. That's what I do. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time, mate? And you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I was about 21 when I really realised that it wasn't normal to live the way I was in sort of the panic attacks and the depression and anxiety. And I just went to the doctor and I was just like, I'm, I'm, I feel awful. And I just basically tell him what the symptoms were and he just threw sertraline at us. And it was just, like, yeah, <laughs> sounds like this. Most people just go through these phases of trying different meds, but it just worked for us overnight. Like within six weeks, most of me ruminations and rituals had just stopped. There are side effects of taking sertraline as well. It, it's not all gravy, but it definitely made a huge difference. And when I realized that actually there's probably like, because it's all down to low serotonin from being in stressful environments when you're younger. So your serotonin levels become depleted when you're an adult and you don't have the same reserve as other adults. So you need a little bit of a top up and that's just because you've been through too much stress or whatever. And the sertraline really, really helped. And I've accepted I'm probably going to be on that for life. But the quality of life difference is, is immense because, you know, I could spend three or four hours locked in a routine, when, no matter how tired I was. If I didn't do my routine right, like before going to bed, and it doesn't make sense. It was like standing in certain positions, praying, even though I wasn't religious, I was still praying like, I had a weird mantra I would have to say, but I wasn't speaking to God and I wasn't being religious and not praying. It was like an OCD thing. All that just ended. And I realized then that obviously if a pills made a difference, then it has to be something more physical and not just psychological. Because I was very quick to, to beat myself up too and be like, oh, you know, um, these are all my problems. These are all things I have to deal with rather than accepting that there are physical elements. So... It was definitely early mm. 20s. Yeah, early 20s. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health, T? So it could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a particular social environment, maybe even a book or a play. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I am figured them all out, but I think I get very upset when people try and defend sexual offenders, especially those against that makes sense. <laughs> children. Like, I get very, very, very wound up about it, especially when... I know people in, I've been cancelled in the community because I've I've got a problem with someone's past where they've offended in the past, but the whole trans community is like, oh no, you need to live and let live sort of thing. And that was a different lifetime ago. And I'm like, fuck that, fuck that. I'm not, nah, 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 nah. I think I'm very sensitive to all this sort of thing because of what happened when I was younger. That's something that'll get me blood going and I'll be like, what, mm. you know what I mean? But other than that, I would say sensory, too many people, too much noise. I do have the added advantage that because I wear a bone anchored hearing aid for my left side, when I'm going out, I can just take that out and I can get like this muffled <laughs> silence in the world. It's, it's kind like, wearing, like wearing um <laughs> It is. It's like wearing, yeah, well, it's just yeah. not wearing your hearing aid. I kind of like it because I don't feel as overwhelmed. But if I was to turn the sound on, I could hear everything could hear every single detail and 
that becomes so like oh god this is too much also i've got i do tend to have a problem with interpreting some questions that get asked especially personal ones so there is like a little bit of a social lag delay whatever as it were should we say so that is definitely a problem that you could ask me to do something and i might not understand mm-hmm. it the way you've asked if that makes sense so yeah i would say the stimuli the external stimuli is is my biggest one and people trying to defend the undefendable I, I don't understand why why do people always constantly think the need to play devil's advocate on issues that really i'm not gonna go anywhere I'm yeah don't worry about that mate yeah, i know what you mean you know what i'm know saying what though they're like i'm just playing yeah. devil's advocate on, but what about completely unconscionable like, yeah, decisions yeah, what about exactly. fuck off exactly you know what i mean yeah so as another question then i've got two more before we finish what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health related but it doesn't exclusively have to be i think it was ages ago all right i think it was the man with two hats it was a great thing about anxiety mainly this book i've never been a huge avid reader or a book reader i've always been more of a person who uses like mm. the internet, okay what about tvs then tv play Oh God, I watch I watch so much TV <laughs> and all this sort of thing. Mental health TV. I don't know why, but Scrubs oh, has a very great choice. yeah. It's it's got a very what's the word like a nostalgic mm. sort of feel to it. You know, some of it isn't dated, hundred percent great, but I don't really care. It's just there are some real yeah, good moments 100%. in that, and there's like yeah, I would say that is me sort of. If I want to feel good, I'll probably watch an episode of Scrubs. No yeah, I've, I I remember doing so many impressions of like Bob Kelso and Dr. Cox when I was younger. Just like all those <laughs> classic lines when he's like, remember, this is your daddy, not your mommy. When he, when he gets so some of the dated <laughs> stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. As a final question, T, this is a broad one mm-hmm. and you can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just talking about their general mental health if they want to do it. Men need to work together more, a lot more. The main reliance for men's mental health in this country was through football support, I think. That was the band and that brought many people together, like in clubs and friendship groups. And there's a reason why they all like to fight each other and all very tribalistic. And I don't like football. <laughs> at all by the way not to not be a stereotype or anything but i do find it immensely strange and i think we need a sort of return to that but football's not the answer i think it's one of the things but we need an activity we need more stuff yeah involvement yeah Yeah, and it needs to be cross-generational as well i feel like we're like across the board we're, we're doing ourselves a massive disservice to the elderly in our country and we don't learn from them we don't respect them we don't hear from them you know they're just we just kind of forget about them and i feel like they are a huge missing link to this whole conversation i know that may seem totally out there but if you look at a functioning society has a great respect for its most vulnerable and its elderly and its young as well as many other people you know but we don't learn from our elders and some of the wisest things I've ever heard of came out the mouths of like oldest people. There was this great YouTube video where they, they interview people of various different ages, giving advice, starting from like a kid and the last person's like 99 and there's like a hundred people that, that say these little 10 second sound bites. 
And the last person, 99, just says, no one knows what they're talking about. And I was like, that's my guy. <laughs> that's it. No one knows what the fuck they're talking about. And I'm quite confident mm. with that as well. I think there are some people who know bits and bobs and more so than others, but most people don't have mm. a clue what they're talking about. There's a great MF Doom quote, which says, the more you know, the more you know, you don't know shit, which I think is very apt for this. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, Tulip, I'm so glad you messaged me. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Tulip for being my special guest for this episode and for checking in with me and sharing all of this trauma he has gone through. This episode was just bonkers in a lot of ways, but I will chuck some links to where you can follow Tulip on social media in the show notes and subscribe to his Substack. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to everyone who's tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would really help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash uk, Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.